Welcome to episode 40 of Father and Son Watch Horror Movies. I am your co-host, the father, a.k.a. Pastor Matt, a.k.a. Matt Rawlings, and I am joined, as always, by my trusty co-host... Jackson, the son, and after nearly six hours of Exorcist films, I think I can safely say that this is the weirdest horror franchise since Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, folks, we are a spoiler podcast. We spoil the movies we discuss, and for this episode, we are discussing not one, not two... But, well, two and a half movies, I guess. We're discussing The Exorcist from 1973, The Exorcist II, The Heretic from 1977, and The Exorcist III, Legion from 1990. So, let's start with the classic from 1973, The Exorcist. Nobody expected it. All right, now, Reagan, let's go. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. The one hope. The only hope. Returns. The Exorcist. Rated R. Jackson, when did you first see The Exorcist? You know, I don't know exactly. It's one of those things that's so big in pop culture that you're kind of aware of it, uh, you know, for your entire life. But the first time I think I saw it all the way through was maybe two years ago. Uh, of course, I'd seen Reagan's possessed, you know, Pazuzu face before. Yeah. Uh, it's so famous in internet culture. Like, you know, they have those screamer videos that they talked about in the office uh, where y- you'll have like a reg- relatively calm video and then the face from the, the exorcist will pop up. So I, I, I knew the imagery since I was very small. But I think two years ago was the first time I sat down and watched the full feature film. I think I saw uh, the theatrical cut first. But this time I decided to go with the extended director's cut because I decided that, I don't know, what is it, an hour and 50-some minutes wasn't enough. I, I needed two hours and 12 minutes. Um, so, you know, The Exorcist is one of those movies that I respect more than I enjoy watching it. Uh, you know, it's a great movie, technically, and um, it's it's really terrifying, and it succeeds at everything it attempts to do. But it's not an easy watch because you're basically just watching a little girl get tormented for two hours, and it's it's just not fun. Yeah, I I understand where you're coming from. I I have probably seen this a dozen times. I saw this on VHS when I was probably twelve or thirteen. Um, it did scare the crap out of me. It, it absolutely scared me off Ouija boards for good. Even when I was an atheist, I was like, nah, nah, get those things away from me. Um, so I can't imagine anybody out there is listening to this has not seen the exorcist, but the IMDB says, you know, we're in a, uh, 12 year old girl is possessed by a mysterious entity. Is it really that mysterious? Um, her mother seeks the help of two priests to save her. Meh. Um, that's a terrible synopsis. Um, mm-hmm. This is based on a true story, uh, according to William Peter Blatty, the author who wrote the best-selling novel in the screenplay. Uh, if you listen to the podcast Inside the Exorcist, which I recommend, they tried to interview the boy. It was actually a boy who had undergone the, undergone the exorcism, who was 14 in 1949. They tracked him down, but he refused to speak of it. He still refuses to speak of it. Um so I did watch the extended version, but I watched it with the commentary by William Friedkin, which was interesting. Um, it, it wasn't what I hoped. You kind of are hoping for some like insider information. He's more just kind of walking through, 
you know, the only time he ever really goes into anything is uh, discussing things where people have objected. So, you know, he discusses the opening, which has been criticized as being too different in tone, where you've got Father Marin over in Iraq, you know, on the archaeological dig and discovering Pazuzu and having tea and all that other kind of stuff. Um, but according to Freakin, he's saying, well, he wanted to show that Father Marin was having a premonition of a future battle with this demon that he had confronted before, but also that he's taking nitroglycerin capsules, which shows that he's vulnerable. That's what he was thinking anyway. What do you think of that opening? Um, yeah, my thoughts upon watching the director's cut were that it was a little too much, the opening. Um, you're with Father Marin for almost an uncomfortable amount of time. Uh, there's this one very awkward part where he walks, he's walking and walking and walking. It's probably about two and a half minutes of walking. And then he almost gets hit by a carriage. He looks, you know, left and right, and then he just continues to walk. So there's lots of very long and awkward pauses without any music. Um, and it is, the tone is very different. It feels almost like you're watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, like you're watching some some adventure, some archaeological movie. And then we flash to the psychological horror that is The Exorcist. But um, I do think it sets up Father Marin's character well, Although it's interesting that he's in this opening and then we don't see him for another probably 45 to 50 minutes. Mm -hmm. We're mostly focusing on Karis. Right. The next time we see him, he's at Woodstock, which is not Woodstock, New York, by the way. There actually used to be a Woodstock Catholic seminary in Maryland. So that's where, where he's at. But, um, yeah, I kind of got the feeling listening to Friedkin that because they did actually shoot in Iraq, uh, the Ba'ath Party was in power. Saddam Hussein had not yet come to power, but um, his party was in power. He had absolutely no rights when he was there because at that time the U.S. had absolutely no diplomatic relations with Iraq. He was the only American there. Uh, he had a British crew. Um, and I think he just tried to squeeze everything he could out of it because it was 130 degrees um, mm -hmm. and he was miserable. And I think he just wanted to use as much material as he could after going through hell to get it. So this is kind of the feeling that I got. Yeah, I would say, and, and I can relate to that. I mean, when you go through a lot of trouble to get some footage, you want people to see that footage. You paid yeah. for that footage, so people are going to see it. Uh, I've definitely felt that before on movie sets. Like, whenever you've gotten your socks wet and your clothes all drenched to get a shot, and then it's only on screen for, for five seconds, it's kind of frustrating. Uh, <laughs> but I definitely think it could have been trimmed down a little bit. Uh, you know, less walking from Father Marin and more, you know, set it up when he's at the archaeological dig, and then he sees the Pazuzu statue right into the modern day. I think that would have been perfect. But the way that it does it, at least in the director's cut, I don't remember, is the theatrical cut as long as the theatrical, I mean, the director's cut? Like, No, I don't think so. I don't think so. No, I don't think I, so. I think all yeah. I remember from the uh, theatrical cut, now I haven't seen the theatrical cut in, in a couple years. Uh, I just watched the director's cut last night with the commentary. But um, what I remember is, you know, Marin digging out the demon idol of Pazuzu. I remember him having the nitroglycerin capsules. And then I remember him having that, which is obviously a premonition foreshadowing when he's standing kind of face to face with the larger, you know, a statue of Pazuzu kind of mm -hmm. telegraphing that these two are going to do battle again, you know? And I think that they just, I think they cut from there. I don't think it's nearly as long. 
Yeah, I think that would have worked better. Better though, there was there was one thing in that scene that really stood out to me. That intercut with uh, Marin looking at the statue, we see two dogs or two wolves, I guess, fighting, yeah. and it's kind of like just setting up this idea that this big battle is going to go down between Marin and Pazuzu. So I I think that was set up well. Um, though it is a little slow in the beginning. And I can see how it's kind of a turnoff for people because there, you know, you're told about the exorcist from a very young age. You hear about it. Oh, it's so disturbing. It makes people throw up in the cinemas. Uh, it was banned from so many places. And then you watch it and it's 10 minutes of, you know, a guy just walking around in the desert and you're like, okay, what is this? This isn't scary. Um, but I think the tone it's trying to set is like an epic scale um, that this demon has, you know, it, it was with um, Marin in Africa and now it's in Iraq and it's following him all the way to America. So it's just this like time after time, these two are colliding with each other. It's just building this epic scale. But on its own with just seeing this movie, I don't think it works as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I do also like the dog fighting scene, and Friedkin does comment on that in the director's commentary where he says that's essentially like his homage to like the dogs of war, and that you're right, that this it's also, you know, that kind of telegraphing, there's a clash coming. And mm -hmm. so it's interesting, Friedkin had to cash in pretty much all of his chips on the back of the success of the French Connection to get this gig. You know, he had done the French connection in 71. It won best picture. It was a big box office hit. Um, and so freaking wanted the exorcist to be his next movie. The studio did not. Um, they wanted, are you ready for this? Initially, they thought about Stanley Kubrick directing the exorcist. Oh no, that would have been something. Can you imagine them getting 273 takes of the vomit scene? <laughs> Gosh. Oh, man, there would have been riots. Oh, man. Oh, everyone would have stormed off that set. I mean, if he would have taken three years to do The Exorcist like he did two, or was it two years or three years to do The Shining? Yep. Oh, boy. Um, but and then when they finally decided, no, we're not going to have Kubrick doing it because not so much because of that, but they just assumed that given Kubrick's record, he would have had cost overruns. <laughs> you know, that would have gone. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, and so also William Peter Blatty, um, who had written the novel, wrote the screenplay, he wanted Friedkin to do it. He and, and Bill Friedkin had actually been friends for a long time. Uh, William Peter Blatty got his start in Hollywood writing comedies. Hmm. Like he wrote some of the Pink Panther movies for Blake Edwards back in the, back in the 60s. And he had a, uh, apparently there was a very contentious meeting between Blake Edwards and William Friedkin, where Friedkin kind of stormed out on Blake Edwards for whatever reason, and Blatty ran after him and and said, you know, I've never seen anybody stand up to Blake Edwards that way. Good on you. And they became buddies. So when Friedkin said he want, when he read his buddy's book, he said, oh, I want to do this. And so even though at the time Friedkin was an agnostic, he just thought it was a great, you know, story. Uh, now, now freaking has become a believer in God and demons and demon possession after living with this for so long, but Blatty fought for him to get it after they passed on Kubrick. They went to Mark Rydell, who's known for usually Westerns, which I think is a strange choice, but they finally Blatty got it and, and Friedkin actually sent them the studio, a copy of the French connection and said, watch this. And they watched it like, Oh, okay. Yeah. He knows what he's doing. So mm -hmm. They get him. Now, <clears throat> what do you think of Friedkin's direction 
in The Exorcist? I think it's great. Um, and this movie looks gorgeous. Um, I don't think anybody would uh, refute that. It's it's darkly gorgeous. I mean, it's it's very cold and uh, distant for for yeah. some of the scenes. Though it can be lively and and homey in some scenes, like um in the party scene, uh, right before the famous "You're all gonna die up there" line comes out. Right. But um, you know, I I don't think that's this movie's strongest aspect. It's directing, but it's certainly like. I mean, he's no slouch. He knows what he's doing. Uh, and it is like a treat to watch. But the best part about The Exorcist is the subject matter, the story told. Because it's so compelling, um, just this idea that these two priests are locked in a room with this centuries-old demon uh, that's possessing this little girl. And the demon is kicking their butts. It's like just mentally just belittling both of them as they slowly chip away their health just slowly degrades until mm -hmm. it all just explodes at the end the, i mean a story like this was bound to come out at some point but i'm so glad that freakin and blatty came together to make that story the exorcist yeah absolutely and of course i, I do think that blatty being a believer and, you know, he had heard this story while he was in, um, or he was an undergraduate, I believe, at Georgetown. And having heard this story, he wanted to tell it. Um, and, you know, he's famously said he wanted to write a sermon you couldn't fall asleep during. He really believed in it. And I think that helps, don't you? I mean, you, you feel like whoever's behind this, they they believe in this story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean— you definitely, I, I would say that there is some intent behind it. There's like a um, kind of a cautionary tale almost. Don't play with Ouija boards because next thing you know, Captain Howdy's going to come knocking. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, it did scare me away from Ouija boards, so the, it worked. Um, but you can definitely tell that, there, especially in the writing, I think, in the way that they handle uh, the demon, how the, how the priests aren't depicted as, you know, bumbling fools. They're like real people who have like real feelings, yeah. uh, which is not often seen in horror movies. Usually, you know, no, the these, Catholics are, are... these are intelligent people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you can see that as well in The Exorcist 3. Um, I mean, maybe not so much The Exorcist 2, but whatever. Um, you know, these usually in horror movies, Catholics are depicted as, you know, just burning witches at stakes or um, right. just, you know, whatever. But these are real people. I appreciate that. Um, and the demons aren't just, you know, disposable. They're real threats to these characters. Um, they're very powerful, and that's acknowledged. Uh, but one of the most profound moments, I think, is, you know, the. I think it's right after um, uh, Reagan being possessed by Pazuzu has, you know, talked to Father Karras as his mother, his deceased mother. And, um, you know, Karis gets up and Marin tells him to leave the room. But they just give each other this look like, I got you, brother. Like they're they're yeah. hanging in there together, which makes what happens next to Marin so much more heartbreaking. So, yeah, definitely you can tell there's some faith behind this, um, though I don't think most people watching that would see that. They just see scary demon. They don't think about the fact that it's really trying to communicate a message. Well, yeah, and Friedkin talks about that in the commentary, that it's the juxtaposition of you have Father Marin who's vulnerable, his health is vulnerable, but his faith is strong. Mm -hmm. You have Jason Miller as Father Karras. His body is strong. I mean, we see him boxing and working out and all that kind of stuff, but his faith is weak. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And it's that juxtaposition of the two. And, you know, there is no competition between the two of them. There's obvious, you know, love and respect. Karis automatically seems to respect Father Marin, even though he may disagree with him. Marin obviously cares for Father Karis, though he barely knows him. There's a great dynamic between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's one of, uh, you know, this film and its later sequel three's like strongest thing is the dialogue and the camaraderie between the characters. Um, I mean, you don't often see that in horror movies, especially supernatural horror movies. But the writing in these films is just fantastic, especially between uh, usually the priest, but also uh, Kenderman. Uh, He's really well written all the time, I think, in, in three and the first one. Uh, so, I mean, you can tell with this film that uh, a lot of care was put into making you care about what happened. It, it carries a lot of emotional weight, whereas mm-hmm. usually with something like a, like a, I don't know, like a later paranormal activity, you wouldn't get that. It's mostly just people are fodder to be dragged around by ghosts by their hair. Um, whereas in this, everything that happens that has a lot of weight, especially um, when it's happening through Reagan, because we get to know Reagan before she's possessed as an innocent little girl, and you really feel bad for her. The fact that this demon is just like, you know, using her body like a rag doll to perform all these horrendous acts. Yeah, I mean, you do. So we should get into the cast and characters. But before we do, I do want to say uh, William Peter Blatty. Uh, probably won't shock you to learn he did win the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. And well-deserved, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so let's get to the cast and the characters. Um, <clears throat> and and William Friedkin had to fight for his cast. No one wanted the cast he wanted. The studio initially wanted Marlon Brando and Jack Nicholson. Mm. <laughs> or they wanted... Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Ugh. I mean, I love all those actors, but not in The Exorcist. No, they also wanted Al Pacino as the younger priest. I can kind of see that. A young Pacino may have been able to pull that off, but he passed on it. Um, So initially, uh, and also for Chris, Chris McNeil, the studio wanted either Anne Bancroft or Audrey Hepburn. Mm Friedkin initially pursued um, for the younger priest, Gene Hackman or Roy Scheider. I can kind of see Roy Scheider. Yeah, I would definitely prefer Roy Roy Scheider. But I think, you know, Jason Miller and Max von Sydow, Sydow or Sydow? I don't know. I've heard it pronounced different ways. Yeah, I've heard it pronounced different ways as well who recently passed away r.i.p yeah, r.i.p yeah. yep i i cannot believe that happened i mean it seems like that guy was invincible because in my eyes even though he was wearing makeup in the first exorcist film he had been in the 70s for you know 45 years so <laughs> that was really that was really shocking to me uh but he had a great career rest in peace um yeah he but i have think- a great yeah, I know you've seen, I know Dr. Shock sent you some Bergman films, and he was in a lot of those, but... Yeah, definitely. The Seventh Seal, I think, is yeah. one of his most memorable performances. Absolutely. But Absolutely. Uh, the cast that we settled on, the cast that they finally got, I think is perfect. I couldn't see it any other way. Uh, I don't know if I would have enjoyed this as much as if there was, like, a big uh, A-list, you know, actor in the part of Father Karras or uh, Father Marin. 
uh, it just would have taken me out of it, I think, because you really feel like these are real people. And mm-hmm. if it's Pacino, I don't know how well that, especially not Jack Nicholson. You know, he just would have been angry the entire time and spouting out obscenity. So I don't know how well that would have went. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, but originally, Jason Miller was not the first person Friedkin cast. Friedkin had actually cast an actor in the role. He had cast Stacy Keach as the younger priest. That's who he had cast, along with Von Sydow. Um, but Jason Miller had read the book, loved it. When he heard that the movie was being made, he somehow knew Friedkin had, had, and knew his number and called him. And Jason Miller was basically a playwright and a theater actor. He hadn't done a lot of movies and TV. He was mm-hmm. primarily a stage guy. But he called and he said, this is me. I, I, I need to do this movie. And he called Friedkin and Friedkin said, well, Jason, I've already cast somebody. You know, and he said, look, I will get on a plane tomorrow on my own dime. I will pay for the screen test. Just let me screen test for it. So Friedkin said, well, what have I got to lose? You're paying for it. And so Jason Miller flew out to L.A. from Pittsburgh on his own, paid for the screen test. And it so knocked Friedkin on his butt that he fired Keach and put (laughs) Jason Miller in as Father Karras. Well, you can tell he's not going to, you know, be a problem on set that he's really going to have a drive to uh, deliver this movie if he's that driven to even try out for the part. Uh, that that's a great story. And that makes me like Jason Miller even more. Uh, I think that he's probably one of the best parts of the first exorcist and the second one. I mean, his performances are always great. And it's funny to me that he was so enthusiastic to get this part when he's so glum throughout this entire movie. Mm-hmm. He really drags his, his feet through a lot of it, but you know, that offset, he was, he was really driven to get this role down. And I did read that he was a playwright, which was very uh, confusing to me. I was like, really? A playwright? He's so good in this movie. He's like a natural actor. Um, but I guess he was a stage actor. So that's just, I don't know, that's, that's a really strange story. I, I've always wondered why he didn't get more big-time movie roles uh, mm. when he was in a movie this iconic. Uh, and it might just be because the theater was his home. Well, there was one other factor. He was a debilitating alcoholic. Oh, um, yeah, in that fact, might do it. yeah, by the time we get to Exorcist three Legion, uh, Brad Dourif said that he had, quote, wet brain. That's where you drink so much you can't remember anything. He had to deliver his lines one line at a time because that's all he could remember. Oh, yeah, it was it was alcoholism, unfortunately. And so. But, you know, yeah, he only did. He didn't do a lot of other roles. Um, I do remember him. He was in a va- he was in a TV movie called Vampire from 79. He was in Light of Day with Joan Jett, and Michael J. Fox. Um, he was in Rudy, you know, where he played the coach at Notre Dame. So, he's, you know, he did do some other roles, but he's probably best known today as the father of Jason Patrick. Mm. Lost Boys. Jeez. and wait. <laughs> Michael from the Lost Boys. So his name is Jason Miller, and his son's name is Jason Patrick. They have the same first name, but not the same last name. I I don't know if that's if Jason Patrick is his stage name. He may be Jason Miller Jr. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Okay. But anyway, um, let's talk about Linda Blair. Yes. I mean, I, I think a lot of Linda Blair's later stuff, and we'll talk about The Exorcist 2 here in a second, As much as I enjoy Hell Knight, I don't think she's a strong actress, except in this role. In this role, I think she's incredible. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, and that might have to do with the writing, but uh, she does have a great performance in this. And I would say that, what what is that, Hell Knight that we covered um, yeah. earlier yeah. on? And she's okay in that, but she definitely yeah, isn't as bad. good in that as she is in this. Uh, and certainly not as good, uh, she's not as good in Exorcist 2 as she is here. Uh, but I think a lot of that has to come down to the writing as well. But, uh, yeah, I mean, she's great. She's this, like, dual role where she starts out really innocent and likable, uh, and, you know, she's just got this great relationship with her mom, and then she just turns into this nasty problem child, and then it devolves even further into possessed. And what I find is, you know, really crazy is that even though they overdubbed her lines with a voice actor, she had to say all of those lines because there's footage of her saying them, you know, in her own voice uh, from on set, which is crazy that they would have this little girl say the things that she says. She had to actually say those lines. Oh, man. Yeah, um, oh. yeah because crazy. one of the actors actually before Linda Blair, guess who the studio wanted to play Reagan McNeil? But the actress's mother overruled it because of the things she would have to say and do. Who? Jamie Lee Curtis and her mom, Janet Lee. Janet Lee oh, said, "Oh man." <laughs> Janet Lee said, "My daughter is not saying those lines." <laughs> yeah, I'm. I mean, that's reasonable. I wouldn't let my kid say them either. Yeah. And I mean, if this movie was any kind of hit, that would be on the record for the rest of their life. And obviously, The Exorcist was so. It's hard not to think of The Exorcist first when you hear Linda Blair's name uh, because she wasn't in anything as huge as The Exorcist after that, which is kind of funny that she, you know, peaked in her career at 13. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, well, that's, that's unfortunately, sad. drugs had a lot to do with that. But, um, sure. but uh, you know, I, she's incredible in this. She was nominated for an Oscar uh, for this for Best Supporting Actress. Many people thought she was going to win it, but there was a controversy why the voting was going on uh the you know her voiceover her, her, her you you mentioned that that when she's possessed by the demons there is a voiceover <clears throat> and that's mercedes mccambridge a great actress in her own right if you see giant and all the king's men but um she initially did not she told william freakin at least this is william freakin's story uh, william freakin said mercedes mccambridge agreed to do it but she did not want screen credit for it because she said she thought it would detract from the movie so mercedes mccambridge who had been uh sober for like a decade mm -hmm. in order to do this role drank a tremendous amount of liquor and chain smoked for days on end in order to get the voice right oh my gosh and she already had a rough voice if you go back and look at giant and all the kingsmen um, she already had kind of that raspy kind of Deborah Winger kind of Kathleen Turner kind of voice. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so she wanted to deepen it. But then after the premiere and people went crazy for the movie, she marched out into the parking lot and confronted William Friedkin. It's like, where's my screen credit? And William Friedkin was like, well, Mercedes, you said you didn't want one. And she, according to Friedkin, changed her story. That hit the tabloids and the Hollywood Reporter that Mercedes McCambridge had been denied a screen credit by William Freakin, which he denies, and that probably cost Linda Blair an Oscar. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing about this, this whole situation. Uh, you know, the voiceover is, is fantastic, and I don't think the, the scenes will be as scary as they, as they ended up being without it. But 
Linda Blair is the one doing the heavy lifting. She's the one sitting in that in that freezing cold set with all that makeup on and that vomit spilled all over her and doing all the physical stuff. So I I still think she she should have won. And even if she hadn't won, I still think that there shouldn't have been a controversy about this because I can 100% see something like that happening where an actor doesn't think their name should appear on screen until the movie becomes popular. I mean, they did that kind of thing back with the Universal films where they would start off the movie like the creature from the Black Lagoon wasn't Mm -hmm. uh, credited in the beginning. It was only at the end with the rolling credits that they revealed who played it uh, to keep the suspense up. You know, and I think that would have been the way to go. And I'm sad that what seems to me happened is that she didn't expect it to be a hit. And then when it was a hit, she wanted the recognition. Right. Um, so that's just that that really sucks that Linda Blair could have gotten an Oscar and possibly her career could have really benefited from that. You know, she would have gotten bigger uh, roles off of that instead of Hell Knight, Exorcist 2 and a bunch of really, really weird action films. Um, yeah. Savage Streets. And yeah. 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 Um, yeah. You're right. I mean, the physical stuff she had to do was incredible and she suffered permanent back injury. Mm-hmm. From, from the harness yeah in the one scene where she's going back and forth back and forth and she's screaming make it stop make it stop um she's being pulled on a harness with a wire like a piano wire and it really was hurting her the make it stop william friedkin thought that she was ad-libbing but in fact she was actually screaming at the people make it stop because she was in pain that's awful it is awful and then that you makes mentioned me feel this, really bad exactly and you mentioned this as well but Freakin said, with that exception, she never complained, despite the fact being in basically a onesie little pajama thing, and it was 30 degrees. They had four different air conditioners working so that people could see their breath, 30 degrees, and she's the only one who didn't complain. Jason Miller complained, Von Sydow complained, the crew complained. Linda Blair was just like, okay. She, even when they ran the tube uh, to you know, spew out the uh, pea soup or the vomit. Yep. She hates peas. When she smelled the peas, she vomited on herself and still didn't complain. That's a trooper right there. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she was, you're right. I think just for the physical dimension of it, she deserves it. But you're also right that, I mean, think about it. You only get three or four scenes of her before she starts coming under the influence of the demon and spitting on doctors and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, she's stealing a cookie from the cookie jar and wrestling with her mom. She's crawling in bed with her mom. She's playing with the Ouija board. But you really do get the sense just from those few scenes that, oh, this is a sweet kid. Yeah. Yeah, and that makes you, you know, sympathize with her even more. Because when she starts acting, you know, even if she's just acting like a teenager, you know, nothing too serious, um, you're like, okay, something's really wrong here. You're just like the mom who's like, she doesn't curse. uh, She's not cross with anybody. She's a really sweet kid. And then the doctors are telling her something different, and that's a big shock to her. Uh, So you can definitely tell something's wrong just from the few scenes that you get with good Reagan uh, and the scene at the very end of the director's cut. I mean, you just feel really, really bad. And um, I don't think that a lot of films can pull that off where they can have uh, this actor be so sympathetic and so innocent and then so perverse and creepy uh, and just really disturbing. I I definitely agree with you. And, And yeah, she definitely should have gotten it just because of how much she suffered through that whole production 
Um, and I mean, it's her first big role. I can understand why she would want to suffer in silence, but, um, you know, she didn't have to do as much as she did. No. So I, I definitely respect her for that. And it's just a real shame that her career just spiraled after her, her alcohol abuse and drugs and such. Um, and, and I think her, 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 um, performances suffer because of that as well, because yeah. you never see another movie where she's that, uh, that devoted. And from what I hear at cons and stuff, she's not very nice to people either. Yeah. It, it, from what I hear, it's hit or miss. I mean, I think she does admit that she has bipolar disorder. And so I think it's just, you know, it's an emotional pro how much of that has been exacerbated by her drug abuse and so forth. I don't know, but you know, I, I feel sorry for people like that. I don't hold that against them. You know, if somebody's got a serious emotional problem and they're rude or something, I just write it off. Cause I've, I've seen that I've had, you know, people in my church with BPD or, or all that kind of stuff. And you just, so be it, you know, um, the other standout to me in this movie is, as you hit on it, Max von Sydow, um, who was only 44 years old at the time. And I can say that as somebody about to turn 48, only 44. He does not look 44 in this movie. Nope. Yeah, the, I mean, the makeup is incredible. And you get a better sense of how much the makeup added to his age when you see The Exorcist 2 and you see that flashback uh, with him as a young man. And you're like, oh, wow. I mean, this is four years after The Exorcist and he looks like that. So, um, yeah, it was definitely some great work on the part of the makeup uh, department. I watched this in 4K on my on my TV, and you can definitely tell that it's makeup. But when you were watching it on something like a DVD or VHS, you cannot tell at all. It 100% looks like he's just aged 40 years somehow. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, great on them. And, and that really just drives home that point that he's close to death this entire time. He's in this freezing cold room. And uh, this exorcist, I mean, this is not, he's the exorcist. This right. demon is just pulling at his heart the entire time, his already vulnerable heart. So uh, really great performance from his, him as well. I mean, I've never seen him in a bad role, but I think this is really standout because he gets a lot of time to uh, show both power and vulnerability. And I think those are the things that make a good performance. Yeah, I've seen him in bad movies, but never in a bad role. Um I mean, watch 1980s Flash Gordon. That's a terrible movie. Even though I love it, it's so bad it's good. It's but so it's, fun. It is fun. But he as Ming the Merciless is, is incredible. Um, now, according to Inside the Exorcist, uh, when they interviewed William Friedkin, Von Sydow was the biggest thorn in Friedkin's side. Hmm. He was the biggest pain in the butt. You know, you've got Jason Miller, who's an alcoholic. You know, <laughs> you've got... Uh, you've got Linda Blair, who's 13 years old, and yet, you know, it's Von Sydow really in the scenes with, initially where they're filming the exorcism. Um, he apparently was just horrible in the first few takes. <clears throat> and, you know, you have that scene where you can see the ceiling crack over yeah. it. They were down to one more ceiling crack. Mm. They could not afford another one. They already had cost overruns. And so apparently Friedkin went to Von Sydow and was like, Max, you've got to pull off this next take. We do not have the money to do this again, and I want this shot, so you've got to pull it off. And apparently Von Sydow told Friedkin, he said, well, I'm having problems with this because I don't believe in the devil because I don't believe in God. And Friedkin apparently responded, well, you do, do you believe in acting in a paycheck? <laughs> 
That's one way to motivate them. <laughs> and then and then Von Seidel pulled it off. It was like, go do whatever you got to do for a few minutes and convince yourself you're really a priest who believes in God and the devil and get your butt back in here and act, darn it. And yeah. so he did it, and they got the shot. But apparently he was the biggest pain in the butt. Yeah, and I, I think that that might have been that he didn't think this production was going to go anywhere. Um, right. And once you do The Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries and Through a Glass Darkly, I can see that it, it would be kind of hard for you to you step into this freezing cold room and a little girl's got vomit all over her and you're like, why am I doing this? <laughs> um, but, I mean, the performance... Well, this is the guy who also fantastic. did Flash, Gor- uh, Flash Gordon and Strange Brew, so I'm just saying. Later on, he did yeah. that later on. This was the first one maybe where he was like, what am I doing? Uh, because Flash Gordon was like, what, 80? And then, uh, you know, that, all that stuff came later. But, but for this, he went from, uh, you know, classic dramas and, uh, highly revered films to what he saw probably as just a gross out exploitation film. Uh, so I can see him not wanting to give it a hundred percent, especially if it's about a religious subject. And, uh, you know, from what you were describing, he's, uh, not very religious at all. So, um, you know, but I'm glad they got him to pull off this performance because I think that Father Marin is one of the best parts of the series as a whole. I mean, he's this guy that every movie can reference. Every movie can go back to Father Marin because he was like one of the most memorable parts of the first movie. Yeah. And who doesn't know the power of Christ compels you, which they exactly. say 14 times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also want to talk about something that it would be surprised if it's not in your notes, the score. Yeah, um, I did write down the theme, which I think is the most tubular bells. You know, that's a very yeah. classic uh, horror theme, and it comes back in some form in every Exorcist movie. Um, but as I understand it, it wasn't made for the movie originally. It's just a no. like, classic piece. Yep. It was <clears throat> largely a, an accident. Um, William Freakin wanted Bernard Herrmann. To score the movie and of course bernard herman had done psycho citizen kane i mean he was a legend he'd done most of hitchcock's movies um and so herman's agent originally said sure and then herman was set a rough draft of the film and nothing was coming and so friedkin had to fly to london to meet with bernard herman it's like what's the holdup? and apparently he walked in and bernard herman said this movie is a piece of blank mm-hmm it's not going anywhere. It's a piece of crap. I can't do anything with this movie. And so Friedkin was literally down to the wire. He had like a, maybe a week, two weeks to come up with a theme. He flew back to New York, picked up a stack of records from a record executive who was a friend and just started listening to everything he could and accidentally stumbled upon tubular bells and made the deal really quickly. Now, Bernard Herman, ironically, instead of doing The Exorcist, Instead of it, he chose to do Larry Cohen's movie, It's Alive. Oh, no. (laughs) So you're telling me (laughs) that The Exorcist, this epic-scale religious experience, uh, he turned that down for a movie. Is that the one about the demon baby? Yes. Awesome. Well, did he do do Q next? Because I think that's the path (laughs) he was going down. (laughs) No, he died before Q the Winged Serpent. But um, R.I.P. Yeah, but uh, oh boy, oh man. So that was a that was not a wise career move on Bernard Herrmann's part. (laughs) One of the biggest R-rated movies ever, and he decided to go with It's Alive. Yep, it is. In fact, I think. um, I mean, it's still. Oh gosh. 
it's still, I think, one of the top 10 and adjusted for inflation, I think it's one of the top 10 movies of all time, The Exorcist. Mm -hmm. Well, obviously, for already movies, it was beat by The Passion of the Christ and um, probably Deadpool, which I think is the highest gross um, already movie in, in America. But it's really incredible that a movie with this subject matter can get so popular and be such a staple of American culture when it's on such heavy, you know, material. I mean, you don't often see that, and especially not by a Christian author. So, um, you know, that that that's a really interesting thing. Uh, and it's it's funny to me that this movie is so huge. Um, when something that I think is very similar to it, like Rosemary's Baby, a lot of people outside the horror movie community haven't seen that movie, but everybody's seen The Exorcist. So, um, you know, this really sped, spread like wildfire in a way I don't think anybody could have anticipated when they were working on the movie, especially not Max von Sydow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what else do you want to talk about with The Exorcist? Well, okay, I want to, for just a second, I want to talk about the cuts. Um, you know, The Exorcist is a great film. Nothing's ever going to change that. And uh, I don't believe that the director's cut is the ideal way to watch the movie because of the things I mentioned before with Father Marin kind of walking for a while and the ending, which I do want to discuss with you in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, it was still an interesting experience for me. This is only my second time watching The Exorcist all the way through. Um, and as I was watching it, I think it really sank in that I was like participating in this huge cultural movement because whenever you look up the exorcist, it's just like so many people online discovering it for the first time that are my age being freaked out by it. It just feels so good to know that classic seventies horror has come back in a big way, especially with like the recent developments and the horror community with like podcasts are spreading uh, like, uh, like a plague. Well, I probably shouldn't use that analogy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Not right now. Yeah. But it's just, it felt so good to just know that I was in good company watching this and that so many people were watching The Exorcist around the world. Um, but I, I do want to talk about the ending with you. I have a lot of notes about it um, and about the director's cut ending versus the theatrical cut. And I want to ask you this question. All right. Do you like the director's cut and the extra two and a half minutes it, it pegs onto the end? I could do without it. Yeah, I would 100% agree. Um, the way I remembered it was the theatrical cut and how it kind of ends on that action. Uh, something really devastating just happened, and then it ends. The way that the director's cut ends is something really devastating happens, and then there's two and a half minutes of walking around and talking about movies and stuff. And it's just a very awkward ending, I think, to such a great film. I get the sentiment that it's like life goes on, even after an exorcism, um, you know, the people like the like Kenderman and Father Dyer, you know, they just move on after the death of all their friends, basically. But it's so strange to me that uh, Friedkin would decide that that was the way to bookend this movie with a uh, kind of a scene in the desert where Father Maram walks around, ending with a scene where Father Dyer and... Uh, and Kenderman just kind of walk around. So it's just so strange to me that, you know, Friedkin was so intent on that after having delivered such, you know, horror during the scenes with Reagan. Do you have any thoughts on that, on why he decided to go that route? It's probably in the novel. Um, It's been a while since I've read the novel. Um, It's been like 30 years since I've read the novel. 
But um, I know that a lot of that kind of stuff is in the novel. So I think he was just being faithful to Blatty's screenplay. Mm-hmm. And then I think when he went into the editing room, he was like, yeah, this doesn't work. Yeah, but I see a lot of people online saying they prefer it, which is really baffling to me, uh, you know, how they're able to just come down that quickly. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I It kind of took me out of it, uh, which is something why I would say the director's cut is not the way to go, um, because it it starts with this terror of the Pazuzu statue, ends with Pazuzu being exercised, and then goes on to have people talking. You know, whatever. I, I was dwelling on it way too much. I was talking to all my friends about it. They're like, we don't care about the exorcist ending. Um, but it just, it kind of ruined it, <laughs> I feel like. I, I got a little mad whenever I watched the director's cut um, because the rest of the movie is so amazing and I can talk about it all day. Uh, but I feel like I've gotten off track with um, what I was talking about from my notes. Uh, the Exorcist, great movie. Um, I would say that its strongest suit, like I said earlier, are the is the, the characters and the dialogue between them. But also, I think the directing is really strong. Um, and I do think this is a masterpiece, but it's not very enjoyable. It's not a very enjoyable experience due to how heavy the subject matter is. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. And by the way, I looked it up. Adjusted for inflation. Mm-hmm. The Exorcist would be the second highest rated R-rated movie of all time. Whoa. Behind the Joker. Really? Yes. Joker made over um, $1,074 million. The Exorcist is a little over a billion. Deadpool and Deadpool 2 are in the $780 million range. Huh. So The Exorcist would actually beat both Deadpools and The Passion of the Christ. I was sure that the Passion of the Christ was up there, but um, it's up in the top five. But uh, yeah. adjusted for inflation, The Exorcist would be number two of all time. And I can see why. I mean, it's a, it's a great movie, and people is that does that include is that just theater? Is that ticket sales, or is that like all time home releases and stuff? I believe that's ticket sales. That's really impressive because it was banned in a lot of places. If I'm yeah, uh, not mistaken, in a lot of parts of England and Europe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And of of course, I'm sure it was banned in Australia at some point because they love to ban anything that might be questionable. Oh sure. Um, but yeah, that's that's very impressive. That even now, uh, in this day and age, we've only got one other movie that's ever beaten The Exorcist as an R-rated movie, even after censorship has been laxed on R-rated movies. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's 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 really awesome, and that just shows that horror is a stronger community than most people give it credit for people are going to to the movie theater for horror not for you know those really artsy indie romance comedies which the oscars love so you know that just reaffirms my belief that this is a great movie i'm ready to rate this if you don't have anything else to say about it go for it i want to hear your rating so i usually on letterbox go i averaged it out with entertainment value and objective rating um, I would say that the entertainment value for this movie is like a 7.75 for me because I am kind of like I feel very disturbed while watching it. But the objective rating is a 9.25 out of 10 for me. So I think um, it really settles on a 9 out of 10 if, if you're not talking about the director's cut. The theatrical cut, I think it's a 9 out of 10. Uh, obviously, every horror movie fan should see it at some point. Uh, though I don't think it's a party movie by by uh, any stretch. It's not really something you want to get with a bunch of friends and watch. 
uh, because you'll feel very awkward and disturbed, and it's just it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. But you gotta see it at some point. It's really well crafted, and I think it definitely succeeds at everything it attempts. It's my number four favorite horror movie of all time, uh, behind Psycho, Jaws, and Halloween. It's a ten out of ten to me, and you've got to wow. own it. You've got to own it. It's just a masterpiece. Yes, it's not. I agree. It's not something like Star Wars, A New Hope, or something like that you throw on just to have fun. Um, or even, as you said, a party movie like Nailgun Massacre, um, mm-hmm. which is just so stupid, it's fun. But it's just brilliant. It's just genius, and it's a 10 out of 10 for me. All right, cool. All right, so <clears throat> for some reason, yeah, you want to discuss The Exorcist to The Heretic. In 1974... A motion picture shocked the world. It has become one of the most acclaimed and successful films in history. The Exorcist is a classic in its own time. And now, Warner Brothers takes you a step beyond. Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Starring Linda Blair, Richard Burton, Louise Fletcher, Max von Sydow, James Earl Jones. Their minds locked together with the most terrifying vision of all. Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Uh-huh. But first, in order to do so, to quote Richard Burton, call me by my dream name. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> ah, ah! This thing. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. This turd. All right. <laughs> Where do you... But I mean... Uh, I mean, where do you even want to begin? Well, okay, let me put it this way. Uh, I take back everything I said about this being cheesy fun. Uh, <laughs> I think last episode I said, it's fun, it's stupid, just turn your brain off and watch it. Um, upon rewatch, while this is still cheesy, it's actually very boring. Um, yes. And I don't know what I was thinking when I first assessed and this movie. stupid. Yeah, it's very stupid, it's very boring. Uh, I don't even think it's to the point where it's so bad it's good. I think it's just so bad. Um, it's the most 70s movie I've ever seen, which is funny because it came out later in the 70s than the first Exorcist film. Um, but everybody's flowy uh, outfits and everything, it's just so 70s. Um, and I will say this, okay? The opening credits for this movie were actually pretty creepy for a minute or two, but then it became monotonous and annoying with all the, you know, the screaming and the tribal drums and stuff. And it it was just the perfect analogy for how the rest of this movie was, where there's some cool ideas and it starts out cool, and then it just becomes boring because they really want to let you know that what they're doing is really creepy. Oh, you thought that the tribal noises were creepy? You thought that this weird floaty camera, like from the locust perspective, was creepy? Let's do that every five minutes. Uh, I mean, it is a real slog. In an hour and 57 minutes, 
I would say this could be a 60-minute movie, and you could get everything that the movie is trying to communicate with you. Uh, we get way too many dream sequences, uh, uh, hallucinations, uh, hypnotism scenes. Uh, it's it's awful. And, I, I mean, I was taking notes while watching it, uh, and I started off with just funny little notes like, is beating fire with a wooden crutch the brightest idea? Um <laughs> But then, but then by the end, it just turned into this movie is entirely too long. That was my last note. I just gave up on taking notes because I realized that I still had an hour left of the movie and it had done nothing so far. This is a movie which focuses on an obviously horrible locust, single locust floating in the air. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a movie in which Linda Blair, when she filmed it, was barely 17 years old. Yeah. yeah and they have was... her half naked yep. in half the movie and making out with Richard Burton at one point, which made zero sense. Mm-hmm. Richard Burton is clearly phoning this in. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's just God awful. I mean, it's just horrible. And then poor James Earl Jones and, and the locusts, yeah, like when the locusts tear the house apart in Georgetown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah, thought this was great. a demon with powers to tear a room apart. Anyway, why does he need the locust for? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the whole locust Africa subplot is. Um, you know, I think it would have been just fine with Linda Blair. Uh, you know, just trying to sell this performance as Reagan. She could have had PTSD or something. But instead, they make her you know, choose to not remember anything. And, uh, you know, she has to go through hypnosis and all this. It's so boring. And the thing that makes it the worst, I think, is that the thera- the actress playing the therapist is so wooden and awful. Um, and she just scene- won an Oscar. For One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. She won an Oscar, and a few months later, she's filming this movie. And she's Probably. terrible in it. Probably because of the script. I would say it's definitely the script. Because look at the lines they give her. We're going deeper. Reagan, deeper. We are going deeper. That is her character. It's so annoying. And it it really made me angry. It's like Reagan is sexualized at 17. I mean, she was 17 when this was filmed. Uh, She was 13 when The Exorcist was filmed. And the producers just decided, yeah, let's have her half naked. I mean, the first, the way she's introduced. Is she's tap dancing in a very yeah. revealing outfit for a random guy who's looking her up and playing the saxophone. Yeah. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Ugh, it just is so weird. Who watched the first Exorcist and thought, yeah, this could use some more sex? I mean, I, uh, what? And, and there's that scene where she's in the penthouse in New York with her you know, uh, uh, or she's being basically raised now by her mom's assistant from the first movie. And she walks outside and yes, folks, she is barely 17 years old when she's filming this. She had turned 17 in January. They started filming this in April and you can see right through her nightgown. Because they gave her like a linen, like one layer. Like it, she's basically wearing one ply toilet paper and the yes. sun. It's just, oh, and I can't, she's out on the top of a roof in New York, I guess, and I can't imagine how cold that was. They cannot just cut her some slack. Um, yeah. and it's just awful. And well, that- you could tell it was cold for obvious reasons, but I won't go into that because oh. I felt like a perp watching it. But anyway, and they sh- um, but they shoot it that they mean for you to. <sighs> I, I mean, know there's no I it's know. not incidental. Uh, 
No, it's terrible. It, it's just, it's, it's really, I felt like I needed a shower after watching that scene. It's, it's a boring, stupid movie with horrible acting. It's exploitative. It's just, it makes no sense. And, and here's what I was thinking. I mean, I preached today on Luke 11 where Jesus has uh, exercised, as an exercise, Jesus is not an exorcist. He expels demons. Exorcism involves a ritual. He doesn't do that. He expels a demon, and he warns the crowd that if this guy basically doesn't get his life together, the demon could come back. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's in the Bible. William Peter Blatty re- read the Bible. He knew these stories. You've got an automatic sequel right there, yep. which is that, you know, as Reagan becomes a teenager, she begins to drift away from what saved her. And just as it says in the Bible, the demon comes back. Boom. You've got a sequel. Oh, no, 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 no. Let's talk about psychic abilities and her helping autistic yep. children speak and let's sexualize her and, le- and, and let's bring locusts from Africa over to Georgetown. What in the world? Yep. And it's so funny to me that, you know, Blatty wrote Legion, right? The book Legion, uh, right. sequel to The Exorcist, with this amazing story that we would see in The Exorcist 3. Um, but what we got as the sequel to The Exorcist in film form was this movie. They couldn't have held out and just made Legion and had that be the real Exorcist 2. Well, none of it matters, because... The Exorcist 3 just completely ignores The Exorcist 2, so it's basically The Exorcist 2. Um, yeah. So watching this movie, I'm, I'm realizing now, watching The Exorcist 2 is completely pointless because it, it's not even a real thing that exists, basically. It, it exists in no universe uh, in The Exorcist franchise, so I shouldn't have wasted an hour and 57 minutes trying to prove to myself that this was fun and cheesy and uh, uh, so bad it's a good movie. Because I was just miserable the entire time. Yeah, it's horrible. So let's, let's, and if there, unless there's something else you want to talk about, let's just rate and, and move this yeah. on because, let's, oh boy. Let's get out of it. Oh, I have one, I have one thing. I was looking All at my right. notes. Uh, did you notice the really awkward part when um, uh, Father Lamont and Sharon go back to the old McNeil house from the first movie? And, uh, you know, she's like, I'm, I'm talking to a priest right now. Can't you help me? And he's like, haven't you tried prayer? And she just says prayer, and then they stare at each other for ten seconds. I know. Well, and then and there's just... that. There's that line. He says, "Well, I'm not here for you." Yeah, <laughs> you're a heck of a priest, dude. These the writing in the movie is just so confusing. It's not oh. even like it's not even bad in a coherent kind of way. It's just confusing. Where you're like, what do they say? What is this conversation? It's like they're talking to nobody. Let me just say, before I give my rating, um, to quote one of uh, Linda Blair's boyfriends, cocaine is a heck of a drug. Um, oh. uh, so what do you rate this, puppy? All right. So uh, it's hard for me. Um, it would be a zero out of ten if I was going purely off of my feelings for it. Yep. Uh, but I, I think if you turn the sound off and you cut this movie down to 15 minutes there could have been some cool (laughs) stuff there so i'm giving this a 1.5 out of 10 you're more generous than me i give it a 1 out of 10 i give everything at least a 1 because at least they finished a movie but it's a 1 
a one out of 10. Right. It's an avoid. Um, I am not for the destruction of film or censorship, but if every single copy of this thing were destroyed, I'd be fine. So it's, that, well, let's put it this way. When it's worse than the star Wars Christmas special, then you know, it's bad. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> All righty. Let's move from the exorcist to the heretic quickly to the exorcist three legion from 1990. The creator of the original Exorcist is back with a terror unlike any ever known. Just behind this door. <laughs> William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist 3. When did you first see The Exorcist 3 Legion, or as William Peter Blatty wanted to call it, just Legion? Uh, I think it was probably last year. I, I don't remember why I watched it. I remember you talking about it on one of our uh, podcast episodes. Oh, I remember why. It was more than a year ago, because it was going to be our first episode of the podcast ever. Uh, we oh, were that's going right. To do, yeah. We were going to do The Exorcist franchise, and I think that's the first time I actually sat down and watched The Exorcist 2 all the way through. So, oh my gosh, this is all coming full circle. Um, yep. Yeah, so I watched The Exorcist 3 in preparation for an episode that never happened, but I guess it's happening now. Um, and I, I had it prefaced by you by saying you, when you saw it, um, you know, you were so scared that you couldn't go to sleep that night. Yep. Um, and so with that in mind, I had high expectations for it, and it met those, I think. Um, as a sequel to The Exorcist, it succeeds in every regard, way, way more so than The Exorcist 2. Um, though I would say it's almost a spinoff. There's not really the same workings as the first movie. It's, it's more of a spinoff with the same characters. Though I guess it's as good as they could have done without Linda Blair. Um, so I'll put it this way, to be succinct uh, before we go into depth, I would say it's not as good as one, but leagues better than two. Like, you can't even compare the two. This is the Exorcist 2 that we deserved. Well, but that's not saying. Uh, yeah, I mean, this... Uh, I saw this in the theater, not opening night, but opening weekend. I think I saw it, like, on a Sunday night, the weekend it came out. Mm -hmm. And it did freak me out. Um, I saw it by myself on a Sunday night. I was house-sitting by myself. Uh, yeah, I, I slept with the lights on and all that kind of stuff. And, and the, where I was house sitting, the, the guy's dogs on my bed and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, this movie freaked me out and, and rewatching it a couple times. It's a lot of a, more of a slower burn than I remember. It's much more patient film than I sure. remember. It's much more of a sequel, really direct sequel to the book than it is the movie, the exorcist. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, because, you know, there are things in the book, in the movie where you're like, wait a minute, that wasn't in the original movie. Like Kinderman's talking about how he and Father Karras, that was his best friend. Well, in the movie, they barely know each other. Yep. They meet each other for the first time after uh, the death of Dirk, I think. Um, yeah, it's, in the movie. Yeah, well, yeah, it's around that time. It's actually after the desecration of the cathedral. Oh, gotcha. Uh, and so, and of course, he's wondering if a priest did it because a priest he thought would be the only one who'd have the kind of access right. to yeah. the cathedral. And so he was wondering, well, he's the chaplain for the priest. He's a psychiatrist. He would know, you know, who was disturbed. And so, um, but yeah, the Kinderman, 
Karis thing, they have a much closer relationship if memory serves in the book than they do in the movie. And Blatty, who writes and directs Exorcist 3, he's really doing more of a direct sequel to the book. He did not want to call this The Exorcist 3. He just wanted to call it Legion. And the you know why, why he only wanted to call it Legion? A mystery that people would think it would be revealed that it was a sequel to The Exorcist later on during the movie, like a twist. Nope. He thought because The Exorcist 2, the heretic was so bad, he did not. Oh, Exorcist involved. He thought. Yeah, that makes sense, actually. Yep. But I I don't think it would have done as well as it did, you know, if it um, hadn't had The Exorcist in its title. I think he did. The producers were like, no, we got to put that in there for brand recognition. Yeah, the studio did that. But it was uh, it wasn't a huge hit. It was a minor hit. It was made for 11 million and it made 39 million. So even if they doubled with the marketing budget, you know, it, it still made about a $17 million profit. Um, but yeah, this was something I saw in theaters. It got mixed reviews at the time, not nearly as bad as I think on Rotten Tomatoes, The Exorcist 2 has a 15%, whereas Exorcist 3 has like a 59%. Um, but, and you couldn't find this for a long time. Um, after it kind of went out of print on VHS, there wasn't a DVD. There wasn't a laser disc that I, if I can recall, the Exorcist three was almost impossible to find. And it wasn't until like the mid two thousands fans just demanded it. And we finally got a DVD and then a Blu-ray. And then even initially people were like, yeah, but we've heard there's a director's cut and more, the folks at Morgan Creek, the production company, which had gone bankrupt by then said, well, we don't have any of that stuff. It's gone. God bless shout factory. They found some of it. Mm -hmm. And, is now a director's cut out there. I do not own the director's cut. I just own the theatrical cut right now. I do plan on getting the director's cut. Um, I saw the theatrical cut in theaters, loved it. Um, here's the IMDb. If you haven't seen it, though, it's on Tubi TV and Amazon Prime and Shutter right now, so you can watch it. A police lieutenant uncovers more than he bargained for us. He, his investigation of a series of murders, which have all the hallmarks of the deceased Gemini serial killer, leads him to question the patients of a psychiatric ward. Not a great uh, rundown because it doesn't tell you, but this is the same Lieutenant Kinderman from the original, and he's trying to piece all this together. But still... Love, love, love this movie. Written and directed by William Peter Blatty from his own novel, Legion, from 1983, which is a good read. I haven't read it in 20, 30 years, but it is a good read. Blatty, do you know who William Peter Blatty originally said he wanted to direct this? And the guy he wanted to direct it was going to do it, but he decided that Blatty wanted too much control, and so he backed away and encouraged Blatty to direct it himself. Do you know who that was? Laying on me. John Carpenter. Oh man, that would have been something. <laughs> yep. And I can just, I can just see this now. I mean, I'm watching it right now while I'm talking. Um, but I can definitely see this as a Carpenter flick with that classic uh, cinema, cinematography. Uh, that would have been something. I think it would have probably given it more character and perhaps made it more mainstream. Uh, though, I mean, Carpenter wasn't doing so hot right then at 1990. Uh, because he had just come off of The Thing, which was a huge flop. Um, I think that that would have been a, an improvement, probably. Uh, but that's not to say I don't appreciate the direction. You can definitely tell it was directed by a writer, though, because uh, the majority of it is character profiles talking with witty dialogue. Yeah, I mean, 
John Carpenter was willing to do it because he was blown away by the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, he really did like the screenplay, and we've talked about this. I mean, you know, the dialogue in The Exorcist and The Exorcist 3 is so sharp, and that's from Blatty. And so Carpenter really wanted to do it. And could you imagine Blatty screenplay, Carpenter directing with Dean Kundi, if he had been willing to do the cinematography? I mean, mm-hmm. the guy who did Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing. He also did Back to the Future 1, 2, and 3. That would have been incredible. Yeah, def- there would have been a lot of steady cam. I can tell you that much. Um, but yeah, I mean, this movie is visually striking as is. But I think Kundi and Carpenter coming together on this, this could have really been something like huge um, and probably more widely known about in the horror community. Uh, but I'm also kind of glad that he passed up on it because there is a very unique creative vision uh, presented here on this in this movie it's it's 100 percent blatty's vision which is something he didn't get even with the first exorcist so it's interesting to see what he did with this legion story uh, and i'm glad that we got that though i'm i wish that um we could have both versions with carpenter and blatty yeah it's i wanted to let, let people know if you haven't seen it um this is a slow burn sure. and there was a lot of studio interference, so maybe it wasn't a good thing that Carpenter got involved because Carpenter, you know, if memory serves, almost quit directing altogether because of studio interference with memoirs of the Invisible Man just about a right. year and a half later. But it's a slow burn. This thing was heavily reshot and re-edited because the studio wanted an exorcism. They mm-hmm. wanted one of the original characters back. Linda Blair wasn't willing to do it, so they got Jason Miller to come back despite the fact that he was an alcoholic. Those were all reshoots, by the way. All the scenes with Jason Miller and the exorcism at the end, all of that stuff was shot after the first edit was done. Yeah, I, I can see that because it's called The Exorcist 3, so there has to be an exorcism. I can understand that. Um, and it's pretty seamless, though. I just actually watched the scene uh, where the exorcism you know, happens. It, it's, it's pretty seamless. You can't tell it's a reshoot. Um and it, it really sucks when uh, the studio intervenes, but I think this time it was for the for the good of the movie because for a lot of this, it's it's kind of a crime thriller uh, when we're just looking into the Gemini killer with uh, Lieutenant Kinderman. Uh, and the, the horror elements kind of come in later when the split personality of the Gemini killer and Patient X are revealed. Right. So, you know, talking about the characters in the cast, I mean, so you've got... It's basically set 15 years after the original. Kinderman is still, you know, a a homicide detective. He's become best friends with Father Dwyer, who we see from the first movie. He was the guy who who wanted to be the uh, entertainer, the piano player, you know, who was close to Father Karras, puts him in bed, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Jay Lee Cobb, of course, passed on. And so George C. Scott takes over the role as Kinderman. Uh, I thought he was wonderful. As Kinderman, mm-hmm. uh, you have Brad Dorff as the Gemini killer. You've got Ed Flanders as Father Dyer. Most will know him from St. Elsewhere. You've got Scott Wilson as Dr. Temple. Most people will know from Walking Dead or Behind the Mask. You've got Nancy Fish as Nurse uh, Allerton, who's primarily known for her bit parts, but is always fantastic. I've always wondered why she didn't get more roles. And she is in Cutting Class and Dr. Giggles for horror fans. You've got Nicole Williamson playing Father Morning, who does the final exorcism. And I always felt, I was like, I know him. I remember watching this in the theater going, where do I know that guy? 
And thank God for the internet, I finally figured out he's Merlin in Excalibur in the nineteen eighty one Excalibur movie. Uh, I'd right. never figured that out because he's bald in Excalibur, so he's got hair here. But I think it's a great cast. What do you think? Uh, yeah, what just on on that wasn't um, Max von Sydow in Exc- Excalibur as well? Not that I remember. No. Oh, no. man, who am I thinking of? Liam well, Neeson is in it. Well, that might be it. I don't know. But no. the cast in this movie is incredible. Yeah, I definitely agree that, um, uh, you know, I think the standout, obviously, for most people is um, Brad Dourif and uh, this, like, split personality with uh, Jason Miller. Because the the lines he delivers as the Gemini killer when there's tears running down his face and his eyes are changing color and it's it's just real creepy. He's basically playing um like what's his name? Worm tongue from uh Lord of the Rings if yeah. he was uh on cocaine or something. Uh just very disturbing. Uh and you can definitely tell there's some Pazuzu in there. Um just from the way his face is all contorted. But George C. Scott and Ed Flanders are fantastic. I mean, they almost have this, like, comedic buddy cop sort of uh, dynamic between them, especially in the beginning when they're uh, in the diner and they go to the movies and whatnot. Um, they are just, like, thick as thieves. And you're you're wondering where this, this came from, but I guess you can kind of see it at the end of the director's cut of the first Exorcist film, uh, where that like came from. I guess that's why uh, it was set up in the director's cut, why that was in the original screenplay, because they would later go on in Legion to become best friends. But uh, some of the most poignant writing I've ever uh, heard in my life is during that scene uh, where Kenderman is talking to Dyer, or is it Dwyer? Um, he's talking to the father, basically, and uh, they're talking about... Uh, hell and all of this and then uh kinderman begins to describe the crime scene uh from the gemini killer that he's seen and it's just so disturbing and tense and it's all broken up by this awkward comedic exchange between this waitress and kinderman um i mean just some of the best writing i've ever seen like i said earlier you can definitely t- uh tell that it was it was directed by a writer because so much attention is given to all of the really genius writing in this film uh, and the cast really shines through on that. And uh, again, I think that's why The Exorcist 2 sucked so bad, um, because the screenplay was so uninspired. You know, it, it was literally just like you had something served to you on a silver platter, and they decided to do something that would just appeal to as many people as possible. And in the end, it, it ended up appealing to nobody. But this movie, I'm glad it was a little bit of a hit. Um, I'm glad that it's become a cult hit now on home home media. Um, do I think it's as good as the first movie? No, not, uh, I don't, I don't think it's quite there. Uh, but as a movie on its own, I think it's really fantastic. Yeah, I, no, it's not, it's not close to the original. I do have some, there are some scenes here that don't work for me, though. I agree with you. I think the writing is terrific. The dialogue's great. Uh, and it is father Dyer, D Y E R. Um, but some, like one of the scenes that didn't work for me is the dream sequence, with Fabio and the with Fabio angel. and Patrick Ewing and Samuel L. Jackson and yeah, mm-hmm. I, I I it does not work for me at all. Um, but where I will give this movie where it had guts, mm-hmm. you know, there is one of the greatest jump scares in history in this movie. Yep, of course. And it has a ten minute build up to it. Mm-hmm. That took guts and it works. 
Yeah, that that is the standout feature of the movie for me. That is that is the part that uh, made me jump out of my seat when I first saw it, because you hear about this jump scare. You hear from people, um, oh, it's so great. You got to see it's the best jump scare ever. And when you watch the YouTube video, you just don't get it because it's two minutes. It's just got two minutes of one minute of build up, then one minute afterwards. And you're like, okay, that was really boring. It's just somebody running across the hallway with garden shears. But then when you get that 10 minutes of buildup and you're like, when is it coming? I have no idea what's happening. Uh, and then it happens. You, it, my stomach just sank because it's so quiet. And then the music kicks, kicks in. There's sound effects. It's this like dramatic zoom. And it's, oh man, it, it just kills me every time I see it. Um, so the editing in this thing is, is really like crazy because it knows when to be hyper edited and it knows when to pull back because in that build up to that jump scare, it is very tasteful and uh, selective. And then there are some scenes where it's just all over the place and it definitely works, um, you know, to this movie's credit. I mean, there's some Requiem for a Dream editing in that uh heaven sequence yeah. uh, when they're when she like flicks the needle and it's like flashing between stuff. Um, and then, like I was talking about, there's these long one takes and stuff. So, um, you know, everything in this movie, there's nothing in this movie that I would say is subpar. Uh, and when it's good, it's really, really good. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, I, going into this in the theater, mm -hmm. you know, I knew nothing. And, and before, well, before you, I go past the editing, it, Todd Ramsey was one of the editors on this, and he had also done uh, The Thing and Escape from New York with John Carpenter. Oh. So, yeah, the guy knew what he was doing. But um, that jump scare, look, I knew nothing about this other than it was a sequel. It was a new movie. I went to see all the new movies. It's a Sunday night. I didn't have anything to do. I go by myself to a theater in North Hollywood. I walk in. And up till that jump scare, if you think about it, there are not a lot of jump scares. I mean, this is pretty much a, this is really a slow burn. Mm -hmm. And so when, when there that, are jump, when there are jump scares, it's literally just like wind blowing through a window or something. There right. hasn't been anything violent like that. No, because almost all the violence is described off screen, right? That mm -hmm. you see the bodies post-mortem. Well, so we're sitting there and there's probably half a dozen people in the theater on a Sunday night. There's me and like five or six other people. When that happened, Two or three people literally screamed out loud. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it took them totally by surprise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I probably would be the same. Because if you don't know there's a great jump scare in this movie, you're not expecting it. Because it's so it's such an innocuous scene. It's just, you know, this hallway. They mentioned something about rosaries or whatever. And then there's this killer nurse with a, with garden shears. And you're like, whoa, where did that come from? Yep. Um, yeah, very disturbing. And, uh, you know, this movie, it'll never be as popular as The Exorcist, which is uh, just really sad that not, not that many people, not that many people even know there was an Exorcist 2, let alone people, you know, knowing there's an Exorcist 3. Most yeah, people fun. think of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm. What I would like to see done is we go back and in canon make Legion The Exorcist 2 and just erase The Exorcist 2. Uh, the heretic off the map do what george lucas wants to do uh with the holiday special and just smash every release you can come into my house <laughs> smash my blu-ray it's okay i'll never watch it again um even though it'll it'll make my my blu-ray set incomplete you can smash it i don't care i will never watch it again it's just yeah. it, it's like a poop stain 
on my collection. <laughs> um, but yeah, Exorcist 3 is so good. And I was just reminded of that while watching it uh, most recently. That I mean, it's very different, but it's such a great experience. And I, th- I find it way more enjoyable, I think, than the original Exorcist. Yeah, I, I can see where people would say that. Um, but uh, one thing I want to hit on before we move on and wrap this up, but did you catch the Chucky joke? No, I didn't. Like Child's Play? Yeah. I didn't see anything. Okay, if you go back and watch it. So Brad Dorff's character, the Gemini killer, mm-hmm. is talking to Detective Kinderman. And I, if I remember he serves, it's, it's, he's talked about how does he get out? He's wanting to know who's letting you out of your cell. Right. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know that he's possessing, uh, you know, older people with dementia. Mm-hmm. And so he goes, uh, it's child's play. And then the uh. next and then the, the next shot is of a redheaded kid with freckles. I did not catch that. Yes, that that's, was intentional. That that's was intentional. Cheesy. <laughs> oh, man. That I'm I'm surprised that that wasn't a <laughs> moment like the, the movie didn't just pause to have people like put their hands on their hips and go, oh, yeah, that's OK. That's clever. Whatever. I didn't catch it because I didn't know that something like that could exist in this movie. This overly yeah. serious, you know, crime drama thriller. Um, I had no idea they would throw in a Chucky reference. But now that I know that's there, I'll definitely be looking on because I will rewatch this movie uh, in the near future. I'm, I'm sure of that. Yeah, I love this movie. By the way, Axl Rose of the greatest band of all time, Guns N' Roses, also loves this movie. And Ashley used to have uh, clips from this movie play during his concerts. But anyway, um, yeah, Exorcist 3, I love it. What else you want to talk about with the Exorcist 3? Uh, I, I just want to talk about one of the standout scenes for me, that yeah. uh, confessionary scene um, with the uh, father talking to the, the old lady. Yeah. Um, that is one of the best written, one of the most chilling scenes I've ever uh, had the pleasure of seeing. And then the aftermath of that, ugh, it's just so creepy. Um, the mood in this movie is just so consistently scary. I think it, it's actually scarier um, tonally throughout, more so than the first Exorcist, where it was kind of like a drama, like a supernatural, supernatural drama, until you get those uh, climactic scenes with Reagan. But this is just a horror movie all the way throughout, um, just very psychologically depressing. Um, so I, I think, once again, really great movie. If you haven't seen it already, you, you definitely should. I'm, I'm ready to rate this. Oh, man. I, yeah, that scene, you're right. That scene in the confessional, you know. It's a problem, all this blood. I mean, it is, yeah, it's very creepy. So, all right, what do you, uh, what's your rating and recommendation for The Exorcist Three Legion? I think I'm going to go with an 8.75 out of 10. Okay. Um, and I would recommend you buy it uh, just purely for the fact that you're probably, if you like it, you're definitely going to watch it again. Um, this was my second time watching it uh, within a year and a half, and I will definitely see it again, if not just for that Chucky reference. Uh, I got to catch that um, <laughs> because that slipped by me. But yeah, eight, I'd say 8.75 out of 10. I definitely recommend you buy it, though it is on Tubi and um, and Shutter and Prime. So if you have any of those things, then Tubi is free. So uh, why wouldn't you? Definitely check it out and watch it. And if you like it, buy it. Yeah, it's 
It is an eight and a half to a nine out of ten for me. I do have a problem with that one scene. I don't want to say it's sure. as great as the original, but it is definitely between an eight point five and a nine. I call it a buy. I own it. I'm going to also buy the director's cut from Shout Factory. It's a little pricey, but I think it's going to be worth it. So, yeah, I love The Exorcist Three. I think it's a scary movie. I think it's so well acted. Um, you look at like ensemble horror movies around that time. You don't get a lot of, you know, where it's just where you just get from top to bottom that many characters who are just great actors. I mean, when you've got George C. Scott and Brad Dorif and Ed Flanders and Scott Wilson, and I mean, it's just on and on and on, and they all just nail it. They just mm-hmm. absolutely nail it. So, oh, man, I love this movie so much. I think it's so underappreciated and underseen. You've got to see The Exorcist Three Legion. So... All righty. Well, folks, stick around for our next pick. And I don't even know, Jackson, have you got a pick for us next time yet? Have you thought about uh, something? I, I did think about it a little bit. I've got a tentative pick, um, but I... I mm. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. You think about it for a second. Sure. Uh, while I tell our folks, uh, please check out our website at... Uh, fatherandsonwatchhorror.com. We also have a Twitter account, Father and Son Horror, and an Instagram account. We also have a closed uh, Facebook group that we have now about 30-some members in. Um, you know, we still only have 100-some Twitter followers and around 100 Instagram followers and 30-some people on our Facebook. Even though we're getting like 30,000 people listening to the show a week, which is weird. Um, but hey, look, so connect with us. And um, also, if you want to be on the show, we love having guests on. We've had guests the last couple of weeks. And and so if you want to be a guest on the show, you want to pick out a movie for us to discuss, we're certainly open to it. Just uh, give us a shout out online. And you can also find me on Twitter and Letterboxd as Pastor Matt R. I'm not rating reviewing as many movies right now simply because i'm swamped uh with my job and two doctorates that i'm trying to finish it's just been busy um but it sounds like jackson's got some time since he's only doing 45 minutes of schoolwork a day so mm-hmm. uh, maybe he'll respond to you on twitter while i'm busy so uh jackson where can they find you online on Twitter, I'm at Kane underscore Hero 12. That's K-A-I-N-E underscore Hero 12. Uh, on Letterboxd, I'm at Kane Hero, one word. And I have been logging films uh, quite a bit recently. Like I saw 2020's Underwater, which I thought uh, wasn't bad. Uh, not a masterpiece or anything, but it was pretty good. Uh, so, yeah, I log five or six a week. So you can look out for that. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel, which is linked in my bio on my profiles on both those websites. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, website links and everything. We have a Patreon. Uh, so thankful for your contributions. I have three videos planned uh, for the Patreon, Patreon exclusives. And we are planning on doing a bonus episode at some point yeah. uh, this month or next. And we have two ideas, I think, for bonus episodes. So we'll reveal those in the future when we record them. Uh, but looking forward to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't wait for that. So hope everyone is well, that you're staying safe. I know that uh, a lot of people are saying we're at, you know, coming to the end of this thing with the quarantine, but folks still wash your hands, social distance. Uh, And so listen to a lot of podcasts like horror movie podcast, land of the creeps, uh, Dino and Michelle over at the home podcast uh, retro movie geek terror on the tube Jay of the dead over at considering the cinema the justin beam rodeo hour got all kinds of great stuff out there so 
Jackson, have you made a decision on what we are watching yes, next I, week? I have, and I don't know how you're going to react to this, but I felt compelled to see this for a while. Um, and I think it's, I think it's gotta be this now, this is a far cry from the masterpieces that, uh, the Exorcist and the Exorcist 3 are, but, uh, you know, I gotta see it. And I'm talking about 1989, the Brian Usna Society, oh, <laughs> which is on Shudder, a crazy movie. I know I've, I've never seen it, but I've heard about it from my friends who were like, oh man, this movie is bonkers. You gotta see it. And just looking at the poster, it's something to behold. Now, I will say that I love body horror, so I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what society has to offer, uh, and I'm sure we will have some things to discuss. Let me just go ahead and tell you, if David Cronenberg um, had smoked a joint and then taken a bunch of Viagra, you get society. Oh, um, no. <laughs> oh, we... boy. Uh, why? Oh, no. Yeah. Now uh... I'm dreading this. You're never going to look at chewed bubble gum on the ground ever the same again. But anyway, oh, all right. So we will. So, folks, we're covering society next week. So don't eat before you listen to the show. Um, anyway, all righty. Society is up next. But in the meantime, go and smash your copy of Exorcist 2. Watch The Exorcist, The Exorcist 3. Be sure to get the Shout Factory uh, release of Exorcist 3. Let us know how it is. I can't wait to see it. So, Jackson, say goodbye to the good people. Goodbye, and remember to lock up your garden shears. Yeah, no joke. All righty, thanks for listening, folks. And until next time, remember that the family that watches horror movies together slays together. See ya. <laughs>